Hello, and welcome to episode four of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Christine Van Dyne, the Canadian Constitution Foundation's litigation director. And I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. In today's episode, we'll ask whether mentally ill and drug addicted people can be forced into treatment. We'll talk about the ethics of judicial hopefuls attending Liberal Party fundraisers right before their appointment to the bench. We'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that did not quite land. But first, we'll talk about a proposal that feels almost like an existential threat to freedom of expression in Canada. Joanna, am I just being dramatic or is it really that bad? You could be being a little bit dramatic, um, but this is how Canada goes. So this was a headline that was reported in The Globe this week that the newly appointed uh, Justice Minister, Arif Varani, who we don't know a ton about, has announced that he is indeed going to be purporting to move forward with a proposal that had been championed by his predecessor, David Lametti, to criminalize, quote unquote, residential school denialism. And I say, quote unquote, denialism um, advisedly. It is kind of a neologism. Before the last five years, it was exclusively sort of a psychological term. So it's really unclear what denialism means. But it seems that what they're getting at is people who deny that residential schools existed. Um, But there's a lot of just uncertainty about what this means at all. So for example, I think it was two summers ago, Terry Glavin, investigative reporter, um, had a really renowned and remarked upon investigation um, that showed that a year on after the supposed uh, discovery of uh, children's remains, actually no human remains were found. So Um, without wading into that, because that's not really the point. There's uncertainty about would this be caught under the new purported proposed criminal law of denialism? Um, And if so, that would seem to be a big issue for free free speech. And it's also worth remembering that hate speech is already criminalized in Canada. Uh, We're kind of civil libertarians. We tend to not like to criminalize speech. Uh, We like to criminalize sort of physical harm, but fact is is that hate speech is already criminalized. So are we now widening the ambit of hate speech to create this new sort of annex of denialism? So it just creates a specter of chill. Uh, I think that there has to be room in society to have open discussion and the remedy to it has to be counter speech. So if you disagree with factual assertions, or if you find it odious to be an apologist for residential schools, then the remedy has to be um, to counter it with your own information and your own facts and not to threaten, you know, imprisonment. And indeed, if you look at the comments of Kimberly Taylor, who was the interim special rapporteur who brought this proposal forward. She really seems to be getting at a desire for discourse. She says, you know, we we need to acknowledge this as a culture. And she thinks that bringing a criminal law forward will help that. Well, that's not what the criminal law is for. Uh, She also says in her comments in this week's Globe reporting that, quote unquote, this violence is prolific and it takes place via email, telephone, social media, op-eds, and at times through in-person confrontations. 
So we just have to be clear that when she's saying, when she's using the term violence, she's talking about emails and social media posts. Uh, so we've fully, you know, gone down the gauntlet of conflating speech with violence, which is a very slippery slope. Um, so I wrote for The Hub about a month ago, I think when uh, Justice Lametti, then Justice Lametti was talking about this proposal and taking it seriously. I said, you know, he should know that this is a violation of free speech. He should know that it's either duplicative, if it amounts to hate speech, that's already criminalized or it's expanding out into some new area of speech and he should stop it. Uh, and I was kind of hoping that this new justice, Arif Farani, would not pick it up again. But of course, there's some polit political expediency because uh, everybody, of course, rightly acknowledges that residential schools is a horrifying legacy and was an evil policy, just to be clear. That's my view. I think right, right thinking people should reject the notion of taking children away from their families to assimilate them. Um, but doesn't mean that we bring in the considerable tools of the criminal law. Uh, Josh, what's your what are your thoughts on this recent legal development? Is it an existential threat to free speech in Canada? Okay, so maybe that maybe that was going too far, but the idea that you could chill you know, journalists or just regular Canadians from, you know, asking questions about um, what really happened at residential schools, that is just a huge, huge, huge threat. But I mean, setting aside the obvious risks to free expression, I just don't think proposals like this actually help Indigenous people very much. You know, as you mentioned, Joanna, what happened at residential schools is horrific. Like kids were taken away from their parents and from their culture and the state tried to assimilate them into a culture that wasn't their own. And that would be traumatic for any kid. And we know there was, you know, rampant sexual abuse, physical abuse, malnourishment, diseases. But what we don't know for sure is what really happened with these, these supposed mass graves that were allegedly found with ground penetrating radar. And we do actually need to get to the bottom of that because if Canadians, it, if it turns out Canadians were misled about whether these are mass graves, they're not gonna, they're not gonna believe anything that they're told about residential schools, and that will actually stand in the way of actual reconciliation. I also wanted to say, like, I honestly, I really can't stand this Kimberly Murray person. So she gave a, she gave the commencement address at my call to the bar ceremony. And uh, she just strikes me as sort of an Aboriginal industry grifter in a way, you know, she moves from job to job, making these huge salaries. Um, for example, she worked at the Ministry of the Attorney General and she made more than $250,000 a year doing that. And uh, now she's presumably making even more as the special interlocutor or whatever name that the government has given her to, to write this report. And um, I just don't think that helps Indigenous people. If you look at the economic gap between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. I don't think the primary cause is necessarily things like residential schools or intergenerational trauma. Like intergenerational trauma is real and residential schools were horrific, but the big problem to me seems to be just that we stranded Indigenous people on these remote reserves in a lot of cases. If you look at reserves that are close to cities, those tend to be in much better shape and the people there are often thriving. So. I think the real conversation is about, you know, how we can 
um, maybe move reserves closer to cities so that people can get jobs and build wealth. And I just don't think things like this Murray report um, are, are doing much to actually improve Indigenous people's lives. So, um, Christine, what are your what are your thoughts on this? Well, now I'm worried you might have run afoul of this proposed law, Josh, <laughs> by having any critical comment about the the argument about ma mass graves. I think it's it's better characterized as unmarked graves. I think that the characterization of mass graves is not not an accurate one. Uh, so hey, maybe I'm maybe I'm guilty now too. But I think that this shows the problem with the law that it's conflating any critical discussion around the unmarked graves with hate speech or some pathological denialism. And if it goes beyond what's been previously defined as hate speech, it's probably unconstitutional. Uh, and, and Joanna, you obviously, you said you wrote about this in the hub. And one of the things that I wanted to bring up is what the practical consequences of say a law like this were passed. And you brought up the case of Ernst Zundel in the 1980s, which a lot of people might be familiar with. This was a notorious Holocaust denier, and he was charged and he sat trial several times for these denial, Holocaust denial pamphlets. And the problem with his trials was that they effectively put the Holocaust itself on trial with the Crown prosecutors needed to bring in Holocaust researchers and Holocaust survivors to support their case, while Zundel's defense team put famous Holocaust deniers on the stand and they cross-examined Holocaust survivors about the accuracy of their recollection. And it, this actually gave Zundel a platform to, to promote his abhorrent views that bolstered this Holocaust denialism. It gave him a stage to stand on and it was really disgr disgraceful. And I think what we want to think about when, when uh, not just an unconstitutional, but an, an, an illiberal policy like this one on, on residential school denialism is being proposed is what would this look like when it's actually enforced? So, you know, that, that is, that's my take. Josh, why don't we go to your news headline? Sure. So this week, I wanted to talk about this story I read in the Toronto Star by Jacques Gallant, and this story really made me mad. This guy named Nigel White, he's a cocaine addict, a crack cocaine addict, and he has schizophrenia, and he just received his 19th conviction for a violent offense. 19th. And this, this, this latest conviction is for an attack on two strangers on the TTC, including um, punching a woman in the head so hard that she was rendered unconscious. At least several of the violent incidents that this guy has been convicted for have taken place on the TTC. And if you ride the TTC, that won't surprise you because, you know, hardly a day goes by where we don't hear about violent attacks on strangers on transit. You know, I myself, I've been punched and I've been kicked on transit. I've seen other people assaulted and I've been just... flashed recently. <laughs> Ew. It's always an adventure. But yeah, it's just it's become like one of these things that we just feel like we have to accept, but we shouldn't. And one of the things that made me livid about this this judge or this article is that the judge refused a request from the Crown to ban this guy from the TTC. Because, you know, apparently his right to get around the city 
um, conveniently somehow trumps the right of all these people that he's physically attacked on the subway. This judge also, you know, he gave him a sentence of 20 months, but it's much, much shorter because of all the credits for pretrial custody. He's also going to go on probation and he has to contact a family doctor once he's out. But the judge, um, the judge is fully aware that this guy is likely to hurt someone again. And yet he's saying it's not reasonable or possible to mandate any compliance with with treatment for this guy. And that makes me even matter. And you, you know, you hear this all the time now that these people who are harming the rest of us because they have untreated mental illness or untreated drug addictions cannot be forced to face any consequences because um, somehow it's a violation of their charter right to charter rights to force them into treatment. Another example of this is also from from Toronto here, you know, in my neighborhood, there's a safe injection site and it's basically become like an open air drug market. In July, there was a woman actually killed in the crossfire between drug dealers outside of the safe injection site because there are drug dealers hanging out there all the time. Yeah, the woman also is was not like she was just a, a, a mom, a local mom walking by Going to get a but smoothie. Yeah, she was not like a drug user who uses this. It's just that the, the safe injection site is in a residential community with like a lot of young families. Yeah, and the the issue, I don't even think the issue is where you put safe injection sites, like wherever you put them, they're going to attract um, large amounts of, of drug dealing. And you hear all the time, like if you say, well, why don't we put these violent people in jail? Or if they're um, so addicted to drugs that they need a safe injection site for years in a row, why not force them to get residential treatment? And it turns out, you know, there, if you think about it, there, there are charter rights engaged, of course, like it's a really serious thing to, for the state to force someone to take medication there. If they're, if they're put in involuntary treatment, this this could be arbitrary detention, you know, forced medication also obviously engages the right to liberty, which involves making fundamental life choices and the right to security of the person, which includes the right not to have your bodily integrity interfered with. But, you know, in some cases here, there is a really strong justification for the state either putting people in jail or or overriding their their right and giving them forced treatment. So. I did a little bit of research to see where things stand, and I think part of the problem might be this 2003 case, Swayze and Starson, that I wanted to tell you about. I don't know if you two have heard of this case, Joanna, Christine. No. Do you no. know this? Okay, no. so the, the facts of this. And are, I would have remembered because it's Swayze, like Patrick Swayze. No, I know. It's an easy one to remember, <laughs> yeah. and you'll remember after this, too, because of, of who Starson is. So Starson is not the guy's real name. His name was uh, Scott Schutzman. And he thought he was a professor and he thought he was a professor with um, that had this company that's building starships and he thought he was communicating with aliens. And that's sort of how he got this name Starson. You know, he named himself. This guy is fascinating. He um, he has no formal education, but he was a brilliant physicist. And this was acknowledged by other physicists like he even wrote papers with some top physicist from Stanford, like this guy was was a genius. Um, but he was also bipolar and he suffered from these delusions about, you know, this starship company. He thought aliens had killed 
Pierre Elliott Trudeau. He thought he was communicating with aliens. And so after he got in trouble, he was in trouble all the time with the criminal law. He uttered some death threats and the Consenting Capacity Board in Ontario decided he needed to be forced for his own good to take bipolar medication to deal with his bipolar disorder. Um, it went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said, no, he can't be forced to take these drugs um, as long as he can show first that he understood information about the treatment and second, that he could assess the treatment's costs and benefits. So the problem with that is, you know, with this standard, things like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, even drug addiction, that this clouds your ability to make good decisions about um, about treatment. So what tends to happen these days is judges are, are very unwilling to force people to, to get treatment. But the good news is if governments really want to act, I think they could because Starson was based on how to interpret Ontario statutes. And um, there are, there's other case law that basically says if offenders are violent, they could have their capacity overwritten. So as long as there's a strong procedure in place, um, State, the state should be able to force, you know, violent offenders to to get treatment. So to me, it sounds kind of like we just need political will to solve this problem and that the charter doesn't really stand in the way. I don't know. Joanna, do you have? Yeah. Thoughts? So I have a few comments. So first, it reminds me of when I was clerking at the Court of Appeal, one of the most memorable things uh, Justice McPherson at the time said was, when you're in the criminal court system, you observe the, mar the constant march of the human condition. And the march of the human condition is looking pretty damn rough these days. Uh, and it also reminds me of, I was telling you about this, Josh, a few weeks ago, probably the best nonfiction book I read this year, which is called The Best Minds by Jonathan Rosen, which is about one of these prodigies. He got a full scholarship to Yale Law School. Uh, the author grew up with this, uh, this man in suburban Long Island. And kind of long story short, and it's not really a spoiler because this is known, is that he goes to Yale Law School, even though he's like floridly ill with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, um, everybody is rooting for him. Um, and then he, you know, in a, in a delusional episode, murders his pregnant girlfriend. Um, and the book is, I think, a really compassionate but thoughtful look at how we need to get serious about, about the real risks. And yes, we want to integrate people with mental illness into the community, but where there are real, there's a track record of violence, we can't kid ourselves. Just because somebody is intelligent and can write papers on physics doesn't mean that they're not extremely, extremely dangerous. Uh, and so, yeah, like I'm a libertarian, but you just don't have a right to knock a woman unconscious. And if you have a clear track record, like we have to be realistic. And the last thing I'll commend, and we'll put this in the show notes, is a piece uh, about a month ago, yeah, from my former boss, Howard Anglin, who's a brilliant writer, where he talks about this urban blight, which is, of course, not a Toronto problem. You see it in every city, especially since COVID, where he says, it, we, we have to face the fact, I'll quote him, now undeniable that there are far too many people who should not be at large in our downtown streets. It's neither compassionate to the severely mentally ill and drug addicted nor considerate to the people they menace to persist with the current policy of negligent indulgence. Uh, and he concludes by saying, we just, we're being cowards. We don't have the political will. Um, so I'm not saying, you know, lock them up, but I'm saying we have to, we have to have sober eyes about this. And I also had the same reaction as somebody who 
rides the TTC and I will continue to ride the TTC no matter how terrifying it gets. I'm a downtown Torontonian, um, but it's not right that we should be exposed to um, these risks and judges need to stop being cowards. Christine, any thoughts? Yeah, I don't... I don't have a whole lot to add because we've kind of covered this. I also take the TTC. I'll be taking it later today. Hopefully I survive. Um, I also come to this from the same perspective as both of you, which is that I am a libertarian. I'm skeptical that the government is going to make better decisions than individuals. But I think we all need to acknowledge that there are mentally ill people in this country who are a threat to themselves and to others, drug addicted, mentally ill people who can be a threat to themselves and others. And the thing is, we do have laws around substitute decision makers in Canada. We have them with respect to people who have lost capacity and we just need a system in place for uh, unhoused and drug addicted people to determine who a substitute decision maker for them will be. And I don't think that the right substitute decision maker is the state. I don't think that the right substitute decision maker is necessarily their um, treating medical professional, uh, because I think that there can be conflicts there. And the problem is that these people may not have family in their lives be for a variety of reasons. Um, so the question is, who will that substitute decision maker be? And where will the funding to, if, if it's, you know, an appointed person, they they will not do this out of the goodness of their heart. The government would likely have to create some system to, to compensate a substitute decision maker um, to, to do this role. So I think that there's a solution here. And as you all said, it's a lack of political will, which often comes with a lack of funding. So that's my perspective, but this definitely is a, a problem that needs to be solved and constantly having problems like you are, Joanna, on the subway. Um, I'll, I'll close that close that that off. And I'm going to turn now to our freedom update for this week, which is our update on one of our ongoing pieces of litigation. And this update is a little bit of a surprise for our listeners. Most, I think none of you will know about this case because we haven't talked about it before. And we were in court on Monday, April 28th, all three of us, Josh, Joanna, and I were all in court and we were an intervener in this, in this case. So this case, the reason we haven't talked about it is because it's not about our constitution. It's not about fundamental freedoms. It's about the inner workings of charities and of public interest litigation. So we were an intervener in a case where adverse costs were ordered against a different charity, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. And we're all familiar with the saying that bad facts make bad law. And that applies here. There were some pretty confusing and weird facts you know, we've talked about the JCCF in this in this podcast before. This is the group that hired a private investigator to tail a judge who was sitting on one of their own cases, and they got caught. And two of the lawyer lawyers who the the lawyers who had decided to put this private investigator on a judge on behalf of the organization, they were permanently suspended from legal practice in Manitoba where they did this. And the head of the organization, John Carpe. It's also dealing with criminal charges related to that, uh, the charges for intimidating a judge. 
So there's obviously some unsavoriness here in the background. That's not what this case was about, but it's everyone's aware of it. And although I've said before, there are also some really great pe and principled people who work at the JCCF. I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush. There is this undertone in the case. So what happened in the case that was under appeal this week was that the JCCF had lawyers representing some students of Seneca College who opposed the vaccine mandates at that college. And they brought a charter argument and they ultimately lost. And as a result of losing, costs were ordered against not the students, but the JCCF. And the JCCF was not actually a named party in this case. They characterized themselves as pro bono counsel for the students. And the cost award was for $150,000 against the organization. This is a pretty big deal. The notion of ordering costs against what the JCCF characterized as pro bono counsel in public interest litigation. Well, that is an awful precedent. You don't order costs against the lawyers or against the funders of litigation. I mean, it's slightly more complicated than how I'm explaining because there was some debate and some questions about the, the clarity on the JCCF's role here. But what we are concerned with as an organization at the CCF is the question of when adverse costs can be ordered in public interest litigation to a charity or an organization that supports that litigation in a number of different ways by providing counsel, direction, or funding. And these cost awards against public interest litigants could chill public interest claims. And that's really bad. That's an existential threat to organizations that engage in, in a public good, which is challenging unconstitutional laws. So what we did was we intervened in the case. We were not a party to the case, but we intervened as a friend of the court to explain the broader principles at stake. And we did that intervention intervention with three other public interest groups, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association and Democracy Watch. Sorry, we did it with two other groups. There were three of us there. But it's a huge thing that we decided to intervene all together to file one joint factum and to speak as one voice about the dangerous precedent that this adverse cost award could set. And we made three submissions. Uh, first, that the Court of Appeal should incorporate elements of a recent decision from BC um, about the existing legal framework for costs in public interest litigation in Ontario. And I'll explain what that test should be. Second, we argued that if a public interest organization is an unsuccessful claimant in public interest litigation, that there is nothing at all improper about the fact that that organization fundraised to support that case, which, and, and that fundraising is generally irrelevant about as to whether or not that organization should pay costs. The fact that you know, you you need to support your work by fundraising from donors doesn't mean that those donors then need to pay costs if you are unsuccessful. The third thing we argued is that a public interest organization doesn't become a de facto party liable for costs as a non-party because it engaged in fundraising to support the litigation. And in any event, a determination that a non-party is a de facto claimant doesn't you know, get rid of the fact that there's a need to consider and apply a legal framework for determining costs in public interest litigation. So what we did was we proposed a new test for when costs should apply. We said the court needs to ask four questions. 
does the proceeding involve a matter of the public interest? Second, is the claimant a public interest litigant? Third, which party has a greater ability to bear the costs of the legal proceeding? And I mean, we didn't take a, a position on this case, but we're talking about a group of students and a public interest charity versus a a college, a government funded college with a, I think, half a billion dollar operating budget. And the fourth question is, has the claimant involved in litigation or conduct that was frivolous or vexatious or abusive? So as I said, we didn't take a position on what should happen in that case. It's not the role of an intervener to take a position, but we do think that there needs to be a test so that, you know, the, the government doesn't bankrupt organizations that, that sue them. I mean, that there's, they haven't, the government has an obvious interest in doing that. They don't like defending lawsuits that challenge the legality of their laws. And I think that the judges in this case, there was a, a three judge panel. They, they see organizations like us and like the other organizations that intervened with us. They see us all the time. So I am very hopeful that they're going to see value in the role that we play. And contrary to what Seneca argued, absolutely stupidly in this case, uh, that we are profit-seeking enterprises that cash in in our, in our cases. I mean, give me a break. We are quite literally not-for-profit organizations with charitable status. And I think that the justices in this case are, are hopefully going to see that and hopefully adopt the uh, the test that we have proposed in this case. So there's a little inside peek into the operations of, of organizations like ours. For those of you who support our work, you might be interested to know that we are fighting the notion that we should pay costs if we are to lose a case. We don't want donor money going towards that. So I'll turn now to the bad legal takes of the week. Josh, let's start with yours. Should we take a break first? Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with our bad legal takes. Hi, I'm Russell from the CCF. In case you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter, The Freedom Update, to get updates from me every week about our ongoing work and the legal stories in Canada that keep us interested. It's one of the best ways to stay up to date. Subscribe at the ccf.ca slash freedom update. My bad legal take this week goes to this high school principal in Colorado who claimed that this seventh grader couldn't go to class with a don't tread on me patch on his backpack because some people might find that offensive. This high school principal needs to go back to grade 10 civics, I think, because apparently she seemed to believe that some school district policy somehow trumps the First Amendment. And uh, that's just not how it works. So. You might have seen this viral video of this kid, Jaden, and his mother speaking to this clueless principal, but for those who haven't seen it, I'll explain. So basically, this kid had the Gadsden flag as a patch on his backpack, and that's the yellow flag with the coiled rattlesnake on it and the words, don't tread on me, that you see on license plates all over the states. And this snake was a symbol of the 13 colonies that came together in 1776 and declared their independence. And so that flag is basically just a middle finger to King George III telling him to, you know, back off and leave the Americans alone. And it's basically become like a libertarian symbol. So the teacher in the video somehow claims that this is um, unacceptable because it's linked to the slave trade, which is really just not a thing. But even if it was somewhat offensive to other students, you know, this is clearly protected speech. 
And there's a long history of U.S. courts finding that schools can't restrict kids' speech unless it, quote, materially and substantially interrupts school activities. That test comes from a case called Tinker in Des Moines, where students fought for the right to wear black armbands to school to protest the Vietnam War. And I haven't looked into the case law here in Canada, but I suspect schools here would also need a very good reason to ban kids from wearing patches without violating their freedom of expression rights. So I think of all people, school school principals should know that. Um, Joanna, what's your bad legal take? So my bad legal take is from the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, which this week upheld a conditional sentence, which is basically like a conditional discharge for an incest conviction, uh, noting that a bill was intended to address quote unquote systemic anti-black racism. And there was a dissent that said, no, you need a penitentiary custodial sentence. Um, And I just think the notion that judges um, are able to address and alleviate something as complex, uh, sort of dispersed and cultural as systemic racism through criminal sentences is first of all a farce. Uh, It's very capricious. Judges can choose to take what they call uh, legislative notice or judicial notice of legislative facts um, when they just decide they want to import a social policy. Um, And sentencing judges should be focused on the individual circumstances of the offender, which could include, by the way, their race or other things about their background, um, as well as the gravity of the offense and the harm to the community. Um, But the notion that judges are uh, sort of like philosopher kings that can mend together society by crafting uh, thoughtful sentences uh, is a very bad idea. What's yours, Christine? I'll just comment briefly that the the don't tread on me is like a middle finger to authority and <laughs> the, the teacher is like <laughs> responding to it with like a iron fist of authority. It's just like so ironic to me. Um, so my bad legal take is, I mean, it's kind of mean. I mean, but I guess that's the point of this segment. But it's about this report from the National Post on this series, Donating Judges, that looks at the politicization of federal appointments to courts. And I, I'll start by saying it's incredibly important to do investigative journalism, that it's increasingly hard to do, that a lot of news outlets don't support it. Josh, as a former journalist, like you know exactly what I'm talking about, that the outlets just don't have the money to fund investigative journalism. So the fact that they're doing this is really good, but... I'm just not into this story. So the story is their investigation found that at least six current Superior Court justices may have paid to meet with the Prime Minister or Deputy PM at Liberal fundraisers shortly before being appointed. And this was on the tails of earlier investigations by the same, uh, by the National Post and this investigative journalism outlet that found that three times as many Liberal donors have been appointed than conservative donors since 2016. It's like, yeah, the liberals appoint liberals, the conservatives, they don't appoint conservatives. I don't know why this is earth shattering to anyone. The other thing is that, you know, these were these were dinner fundraising events with tickets over $200. So I just don't think that this is a huge amount of money, even, and it's not a huge amount of people. We're talking about like a hundred appointments and there were six people that didn't even necessarily donate the maximum. And I don't think that that is pay to play. 
the maximum is not a significant, the, the maximum you can donate to a party is not a significant amount of money. Uh, when I think of pay to play, I think of, you know, lobbyists taking people on junkets, like the Chinese government bringing municipalities, like municipal politicians to China on these trade missions and whining and dining them. I, that's the kind of thing that I think of. I don't think of like a $200 dinner. When I was in private practice, I worked for a lawyer who was later appointed to the court. I'm not going to say who it was, but he was absolutely not a partisan. He was not a liberal. We discussed politics and he was not a liberal. He actually kind of hated politics, but he had a bunch of friends who were a part of a particular cultural community. And one of them organized some event and convinced him to go. So he went to support his friend and he was later appointed to the bench as a judge. And seriously, he's not a partisan, but a news outlet ran a story about how he was a liberal party donor because he had been to this, this dinner and paid some small amount of money to go to this dinner that his friend had organized. And I felt bad because I thought, you know, he was, he, it's not an accurate description of who he was to sit, characterize him as some partisan hack getting appointed. Like he just literally did not care. He didn't even seem to care about this particular event. It was just supporting his friend. And I think that it just shouldn't be shocking that conservatives don't get appointed when the liberals are in power. That is the nature of how partisan uh, political appointments work. And the, the, the background to this is that there's a huge backlog of judicial appointments. There have not been enough appointments made. And the government has said, we're not looking through a partisan database to determine who to appoint. I don't know that I believe that. Maybe it's not their internal party membership system, but they might be looking at other things like attendance at events or donations. But I just think that that is not actually the priority. I think that if the government is delaying their appointments, it's not because they're looking for liberal party donors. They're probably looking for the right mix of identities. Uh, they're looking for some type of intersectional person that they can appoint to check different boxes of diversity. And that is probably more what is driving the backlog in appointments than their desire to get the the right donors josh i know that you disagree with my take on this what do you think yeah i don't i don't totally disagree um i can see where you're coming from but i do think you're a little bit too jaded because you know um a couple people who are not lawyers in my life sent me this story and they were really outraged about this because you know normal people out there still think that um the judiciary should be as nonpartisan as possible and i think that's true because you know if if people out there perceive the judiciary as partisan, then they're not going to comply with it, its rulings as much. And that leads us to a situation where we have less and less rule of law. And, you know, I was just thinking back to sort of jurisprudence class in law school, and there's this big debate in legal philosophy about what creates fidelity to the law. Like, why do we follow laws that we don't agree with just because they're the law? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that um, we acknowledge that uh, judges are generally fair and unbiased. And so we should probably try and maintain that as much as possible. And, you know, you make a good point. Like a lot of people go to dinners and they don't think of themselves even as like a liberal donor or conservative donor. They're just going to, you know, hang out with their friends or whatever. But um, 
in some of the case, in some of the examples here, like people were appointed to the bench just months after they'd been to, you know, fundraiser after fundraiser after fundraiser. So it really looks like they were trying to say, hey, look at me, like I'm a liberal, you know, at the time when they're applying to the bench. And so I think in those cases, it's a little bit more suspect. But um, I think at the end of the day, we should try and uh, try and make sure the judiciary looks as nonpartisan as we as we possibly can. Um, Joanna, did you did you have thoughts on Christine's bad legal take? Or no, I'm in I'm in the jaded camp. Unfortunately, <laughs> I just I I know too much about how the sausage is made. All right. So uh, since you don't have much to say about that, I guess I'll I'll send us out. So as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us, and subscribe. And just a reminder, you can support our work by subscribing to the Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel, by following us on Twitter or by visiting our website, theccf.ca. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that donate button on the website if you can. If you have ideas for the show, you can write to me, Josh DeHaas, at jdehaas at theccf.ca, Joanna Barron at jbarron at theccf.ca, or Christine at cvangine at theccf.ca. Thanks for listening.